1: I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Jack Ford took up fly fishing in elementary school. By the fifth grade, he was tying his own flies, and before graduating from high school, he was an avid fly tire and fly fisherman. Jack started fly fishing for steelhead in 1972 before getting the travel bug and setting off to experience other fisheries, including Montana, where he made quite a name for himself. Jack is a longtime guide, outfitter, and conservationist who's endured a lifetime of lessons that many of us can learn from. In this episode of Anchored, I sit down to learn more about what fly fishing was like all those years ago in Michigan, and to hear more about his new book, The View from the Middle Seat. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by South Dakota and their incredible hunting opportunities. In South Dakota, hunting is a shared legacy, something everyone can be a part of. That's why they're focused on making their fields a welcome place for everyone. See how at HuntTheGreatestSD.com, where you can hear stories from sportswomen and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. While you're there, check out public land maps, hunting blogs, and seasonal information for one unforgettable fall. Learn more at www.HuntTheGreatestSD.com.
2: Here in Saginaw, Michigan. And I basically uh, never left other than, you know, trips and I have a place up north and stuff like that. But home base has always been around Saginaw. And I was born in 1940.
1: You, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was just about to ask when you were born. Yep, that was it. So 40, 80, are you 82. You don't look 82.
2: Well, I could kiss you, but not right now.
1: <laughs> well, I'm going to bring you right back to the 40s. Let's go right back to the 40s and walk through how you got into fishing. Okay.
2: Well, uh, my great grandmother, who was very unusual because she was a uh, a lone mom, actually bought a place on a lake up north when I was just like two or three or four or something like that. Oh, wait a minute, I wasn't even born. She, she bought this place in 1927. I'm sorry. And we still have it, by the way. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So on the sign outside of the cottage, we have a plaque that says Nana's Gift. So her name was Nana. So it was a gift to my my brother and I, actually. I still go up there quite a bit in the summer. And I stay there sometimes when I'm guiding. But it's a fam- it's a family thing. So...
1: And and there's fish in the lake?
2: Yeah. And it it used to be really good pan fishing, actually, with some trout, because it was a a dammed up trout river, actually, called the Cedar River. And it had browns, and if you went upstream far enough, it had brook trout. But uh, I learned to fly fish uh, because I was standing out on the dock when I'm like five, six, seven years old. I don't know for sure exactly, but pretty young. And all I had was a bobber out there and uh, two cottages down, there was a family, a father and a son that fly fished. And he was about five years older than I was. His name was Glenn. And I would see him go out in a boat and row and come back with a bunch of fish and he was fly fishing. So one day he swung down there by me, uh, like a year or two, this went on and asked me if I wanted to go with him and that started me in fly fishing.
1: Oh, okay. Now did your grandma buy it specifically for fishing or just my,
2: Well, it was my actually my it was actually my great-grandmother. Oh, okay. Yeah, she was born in 1878 actually. Yeah, so it goes back a long ways. It's <laughs> quite she, way uh, well. she she was quite a lady. She had her own car, she drove she I don't even know what happened to her husband. It's it's weird. I, I don't know why I never asked her, because I loved her and I was close to her. But she died when I was about 14. But uh, she had a bakery. She had a beauty shop in her own house until she was like 75.
1: Oh, so she, was she was cutting edge for yeah. the day, that time, definitely. Yeah,
2: she had, she, she had a, like a brand new car, you know. <laughs> it was amazing.
1: What a baller.
2: Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's how I got started, and he and Glenn and I fished together for years, and uh, it was very unusual because within a half a dozen places of my cottage on that lake, there were three guys that fly-fished within two or three places.
1: Even back then, huh?
2: Yeah, but the Sandvik family was and do it big big time so I never stopped fly fishing so I've been fly fishing since I was probably about 10 8 or 10 years old yeah I was trying flies in grade school so
1: I've got so many questions for you especially as you get into your 30s to 50s but what was fly fishing like back then overall in Michigan I know that it wasn't very popular but was it poo-pooed was it totally alien did people know about
2: it but just not do it uh, I think a lot of people knew about it, but just didn't do it. But like I say, there was several people around where I was that did do it. So I fished with all those old gentlemen and the Sandvics, he they knew the most about it. So I learned how to tie flies from them. I learned how to fly fish from them and I did it with some other people, but I learned more from them. When I was 14 years old, I actually went up on the Isabel River. And that's the first time I ever saw one of them uh, river boats, one of them long 22 foot river boats that they have up there. And uh, it was really strange because I met George Griffith on the first time I ever went up to the river. He was at Gates's lodge up there and he had one of them boats. And I remember because uh, there was a bamboo fly rod in it and a fiberglass fly rod. It was a, it was a year of the back then there was no graphite. It was fiberglass or or bamboo, and my first two my first fly rod was actually a bamboo fly rod that I paid uh, four dollars and ninety seven cents for. And my second rod I bought after I saw this one uh, in in that river boat I saved up, and uh, my dad got it for me wholesale. And I paid $11.97 for it. But it was like a $22 fly rod. And it was fiberglass. It was a head and pal, they called it. So uh, I, had, I fished for that for quite a while, actually. And when I started trout fishing, my, my bamboo fly rod was a nine foot. I actually threw the butt section away and put a reel seat in a cork. It was a three-piece on the um, on on, on the biggest piece that I had left, and made like a six-foot rod out of it because the Cedar River wasn't very big. So uh, that's what I used when I trout-fished then for a while till I got a real job. (laughs) But uh, I was very fortunate. My mother and dad took me up there Memorial Day. Left me at the cottage. They come up on weekends and some on vacations, and I spent the whole summer up there until I grad- After I graduated from high school, so basically all I did is fish and tie. And later on, a little bit later on, I started chasing the girls too. But you know, I still had time to fish. But. <laughs>
1: Priorities. You get the
2: idea.
1: <laughs> what was the point right. of fly fishing back then? Was it, because I I always imagined that back then it was all about bringing home food to feed the family. So you'd want to be able to do that, you know, as efficiently as possible. Back then, was it
2: well, for fun?
1: Was it more productive in some ways?
2: I'll tell you what, I caught more fish than anybody did. And I did it fly fishing, but what I caught mostly was all bluegills. And bluegills, you know, they were all eight, 10, 11 inches long, are really good eating. And I used to fill our freezer up. I, I would go out and catch a half a five gallon pail every time I went out. So we had, we had all, all kinds of fish to eat, but my dad was a pipe fisherman, but and a trolled. He never, never really took to fly fishing. He trolled all his life, but Every time I wanted to go to the river, I wanted something. He made my first fly tie advice, by the way. And uh, pretty incredible. I I feel sick because about five years ago, I thought, what am I doing with that? And I threw it away. I I could kick myself right in the rear right now for doing that. But uh, yeah, I didn't do it because I thought it was cool. I just did it because I love doing it. And uh, I caught a lot of fish doing it, you know. It yeah. took me a while to learn how to trout fish because it's a lot more technical. But, yeah.
1: So after you graduated high school, what was the plan? What were you intending to do with your life? Well,
2: listen, this, this is pretty interesting story. I was going to go into the Marine Special, Special Forces. They aren't going to believe this, but I was 17 years old and I couldn't go in. So I graduated when I was 17. So they told me, well, you got to wait a year. So my dad said, well, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I might as well get a job now, you know. So he said, well, I got some good advice for you. I said, what's that? He says, you go up to the cottage and you stay there as long as you want and do what you want because it'll be the last time you can do it until the day you retire. So I came home in November. And I was still waiting to go into service. So I started out at General Motors on December 8th, 1958. And uh, I ended up working there for 33 and a half years, actually. So I retired at 51, 33 and a half years later. And a year after that, then I start guiding. There's a, there's a whole story why I started, but. but. You
1: can't just dangle that carrot. Tell me, why did, wh- why did you start?
2: Well, all the time I worked at Steering Gear, from the late 60s on, I was involved with Trout Unlimited. So, from 1976 for 40 years actually, I taught fly tying and fly fishing for Trout Unlimited. And I was involved in the chapter. I was president of the chapter uh, three times for two years and always on the board for 40 years until we started to other one up with Sean over on the Pier Marquette River like uh, eight years ago, I think. So it was just kind of a natural thing. But I went out when I retired and I was fishing on uh, Armstrong Spring Creek. You've heard of it, probably. In, in uh, Paradise Valley by Livingston, Montana. So it's a great spring creek. There's three of them there, actually. Armstrong, DeBuse, and Nelson's, and I fell in love with their families and everything. But So I fished there 14 days every year with my, my wife. And then when I retired, I went out there and I was fishing there. Then there was a guide there, outfitter, with some clients, a father and a son. And it was, they were Jewish, so it was, the, uh, he was 13, so he was just becoming an adult. So the father brought him out there. And uh, the, the, the guide was, had the guy woolly bugger fishing on the spring creek, not even dry fly fishing. So the kid, his name is Seth, uh, came down to me, I'm catching him on dry flies, and he says, you mind me asking, you know, what you're using and whatever. So I gave him some dry flies. The next day, I show up at the same creek, and they're there again with the same guide with the woolly bugger. So, the father came over and thanked me for helping his son with the dry fly. And I asked the son, I said, well, did you ever catch anything with the flies I gave you yesterday? He said, no. I said, well, if it's all right with your father and your outfitter, you can fish with me all day today. So I taught him how to fish. And uh, then the outfitter come up to me and he said, I hear that you retired and you're well known around here for your fishing ability on the Spring creeks." And uh, he said, I'd like to have you come and guide for me. I said, well, wow, I haven't even thought about it. He said, well, think it over. So the next year I start guiding for I did like 125 trips out there.
1: So how old were you when you started? Well,
2: I was 51 when I retired, so I would have been 52 when I started guiding. So that's 30 years ago, by the way. So I've had two careers, one at General Motors and and one, uh, one, one guiding. Those people, by the way, are are really good friends of mine. I ended up guiding them for quite a while. And now I just fish with them. But they live in New York, and the son is a well-known orthopedic surgeon uh, from Stanford University, by the way. He's one of the best well-known orthopedic surgeons in the world now. Pretty exciting. Great family. They fish all the time.
1: Good. How come you didn't decide to pursue (laughs) a fishing career for those 30 years? Was it just stability? Is that just not how things were done back at that time?
2: Well, that may be it, but be quite frank with you, I hired in at 18 years old at General Motors. And I was advancing. I hired in on a machine. And to be quite frank with you, when when I retired, I was the second command of three plants that had 2,200 people. I was their quality manager. So I kept getting advances and advances and better jobs, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I I liked my job. I liked my work. I was making good money. And to be quite frank with you, I retired after 33 years with a great retirement. Why leave? So I can enjoy guiding (laughs) (laughs) because I love it. And we're not dependent on living on it.
1: (laughs) Are you still guiding, Jack?
2: Yeah, sure.
1: Is it not exhausting?
2: Uh, well, my clients have to pick up a lot of the slack.
1: <laughs> you should be making them row you
2: downstream. Well, I, I love the rowing part. I love the teaching part. And that's why I'm still so going. I just love getting people on good fish, teaching them the techniques to do it. And uh, I've mentored quite a few people, or a lot of people, actually. But. Uh, so I've been guiding 30 years, and to be quite frank with you, almost all my clients been with me, at least 25 of them. I pick up a few here and there. Uh, I've lost a few because of, you know, I lost one of my best clients and best friends at 53 because he got cancer. So so I've p- picked up a few, but basically uh, I've been guiding the same, same people forever. So you know how that goes. Yeah.
1: What did guiding teach you later in life that you hadn't learned earlier on?
2: I think uh, my wife would disagree with this, but I think I'm probably a lot more patient than I used to be. Uh, but I've learned a lot more about teaching. And um, I've learned more about fishing. I learn more about fishing every year. It's it's amazing. It's It's a process that you never stop getting better at.
1: Now, I think I read that at some point, don't, don't quote me here, I think it was the 80s, you decided that you were no longer going to retain steelhead?
2: I, I started catch and release personally myself in 1962. I never killed another fish or trout.
1: Can you tell me more about that? Because that's way ahead of your time. So what what was the process there? Why did you decide to go that route?
2: Well, that's a whole story. So I got very sick. Uh, probably the only time in my life I never missed school. I never missed work. And, uh, I think I was about 22, 23. I got a real bad infection. I got up, I had a wife and a young uh, daughter, baby. I got up one day and I couldn't get out of my chair because my kidneys were failing. So it was some kind of a viral sickness. I almost died. My best friend got the same thing. He did die. So I don't know. Wow, I'm having a hard time talking about Anyway, so um, the doctor told me I couldn't go back to work for a while. And I said, well, I feel pretty good. He says, I want you to go up north because he's my family doctor. He knew me. He says, I want you to go fishing every day and just relax, and then come back in a few weeks. So I went up there, and I every time I released a fish, I said a prayer for Bud. And then I couldn't kill any more fish. Wow. So I haven't talked much about it, but that's how I started.
1: Did you ever figure out why... What caused the sickness? I mean, for you both to get it at the same time. What's what happened?
2: No, there was some kind. Of, I've heard uh, there was some kind of epidemic going around. I started it with strip throat, and then it just got me. But I took uh, they called Bicillin, million units of penicillin every two weeks for a year. To make sure it didn't get me, but I don't know. It got, it got bud. That's all I can tell you. But, uh, um, I I talked to a, with a friend of mine and it was a doctor later on. And he was telling me that, that in the early sixties, there was some kind of epidemic that went around with this, with this disease. And I just got caught up in it. I guess I got it from somebody or whatever.
1: Right. Wow, that's oh, anyway. profound.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I did uh, when I first started steelhead fishing, and uh, let me see, I've been fishing at Bear Market since '72. So I did kill a few steelhead. It 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 wasn't the trout thing, you know. And, but then after a couple of years, I didn't kill any more steelhead either. So really. Uh, uh, it was just more like the trout bud thing that led me to, and then, you know, and I, then I also realized when I really got involved with TU heavily in the 70s and have been ever since, that that was their thing. But uh, actually, I didn't do it because Trout Limited was doing it. I ended up doing it because of Bud.
1: Thank you to South Dakota for supporting this episode of Anchored. For more than 100 years, pheasant hunting has been a storied South Dakota tradition. Now for the next century, South Dakota is focused on expanding pheasant hunting's horizons, welcoming more sportswomen to the field, giving them a greater voice in the hunting community. That's a legacy to stand the test of time. Find out more at huntthegreatestsd.com. You have watched Fly Fishing Go from being not very popular to, I mean, some people would say too popular. What's your yeah. take? You've seen so much happen <laughs> in in your lifetime. What's your take on that?
2: Oh my God! So, so when I first start teaching the classes at Trout Unlimited, my wife and I went to a dinner, seafood dinner that we had every year. It was great. Our TU chapter. And there was an old, two old guys sitting across from me, and one of them said to me, "He says you're Jack Ford, aren't you?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm Jack Ford." He said, "So you're the one that's teaching all these people on how to fish." He says, "You know, someday you're going to think that that might not have been such a great idea." <laughs> I did it for forty years, and my classes usually had. Uh, 20 to 30 people in them for the first 20 years probably, but I don't know, I really enjoyed teaching, and I, I guess that's probably why I also enjoy guiding.
1: Was he right? Do you feel like do you have any regret teaching people how to fish?
2: No, because I think if they know how to do something well, and I also, if, if you teach people right and you act right on the river and you do the right types of things and etiquette and smile at everybody and talk to everybody like I do, um, and I don't care how people fish, I you know, it, it's a great, great thing whether they fly fish or spin fish or – high stick nymph fish or euro fish or swing fish. I don't care. I don't get into all that drama, but um, I think I've probably done more good than harm
1: from a fishing stance. I'm really curious to talk to you about Michigan's fisheries. so Michigan to me is I would say it's in my top five favorite places to fish in the u s What have you seen change over the last I can't believe I'm going to say this, but sixty years—it's so weird saying that. But over the last over your lifetime, what have you seen change in Michigan?
2: Yeah, it's all right—the numbers of fishermen and the and the various techniques. I mean, I grew up. I was so glad when I was five years old I got rid of that damn bobber <laughs> and picked up a fly line and start fishing with it. Yeah. And then we fished nymphs and we fished streamers and we fished dry flies. And we did all this without a bobber for years. And now what I've seen is because I think it's easier to teach somebody to throw a bobber out there and watch it float down the river. What I see is a lot of people, and I'm not against any technique, believe me. But now the same people that are fishing with a bobber are looking at people... That aren't fishing with a bobber like they're doing something wrong it's it's the drama <laughs> I th- I think the drama in fly fishermen is a lot more now than it it, it, it ever, ever has been you know people swing which is great I'm sure you do you're you're a spay fisherman uh, I believe aren't you
1: yep I'm a swing but I mean I, I'll fish any technique if, uh, if it works I still fish I still fish conventional tackle. Yeah,
2: I know you are. Right. I I never did get into the Spain myself. I bought a couple of the rods when they got popular and um, used them a couple times. I just, I'm kind of like, if I can do it with one hand and one, you know, and most of the rivers where I'm at, I can cast 50 to 80 feet. I don't need two hands to do that. But um, it's gotten very popular but uh, the only thing I don't care for is putting a bobber on my line and watching a bobber float down the river. But I don't I don't think there are so many people doing it um, and it works very well. But there's a lot of drama with a lot of people saying, oh, you, if you're if you're not fishing the way I fish, uh, then you shouldn't be fishing at all. You know, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, but to I me, think it's so ridiculous. Any, any way
2: they want to do it, I don't care. Yeah.
1: Were you yeah. were you yeah. there when they first started chuck and decking?
2: <laughs> when I started. And you got to realize when I started guiding up it was 1992. So i had been fishing the Pier Marquette River with a um fly line for steelhead for 20 years. So I started guiding and I'm guiding these people and using a fly line, sinking tip fly line, actually, and fishing for steelhead. But they're going into the fly shops and coming out with slinkies and flies and saying, well, this, this is the way they're doing it and they're catching more fish. Maybe you should try it, you know, so. um I've actually got people today that still do some chuck and duck and I don't care uh, as long as they're drifting the fly straight and they're not setting hook all the time or pulling on it. uh, It's a very um, unique way to fish. I mean, Joe Humphreys is one of my best friends. I helped him make a nymphing video, actually, back in the 90s. And Joe fishes with a monofilament line in the split shot. You know, you throw it out there and you let it roll on the bottom. You're going to catch more fish because that's where the that's where the fish are actually, and you get a better drift because it's not it's it it fishes without any um, drag or anything. You know, uh, so Joe is very very good at it. I mean, I fished with Joe. Joe used to come and fish with me for steelhead, but for you know, quite a few times. But uh, I, I am not opposed to any of it as long as they're not trying to snag fish. And I can tell you right now, they've given Chuck and Duck a bad name because some people do snag with them because they, they, rip, they, they rip the rod trying to hook the fish. But I've seen people do the same thing with bobber.
1: Good point. Yeah.
2: You know, they stand up high and and let the bobber swing through the fish instead of drift through the fish. And they they can follow hook them by swinging a bobber. You you can you can follow hook a fish by swinging a spay rod. So, you know, I don't think there's it's not technique. There's not a technique around if it's not fished appropriately, that can't catch fish well and honestly. It, so it's it's in the person's mind what they're doing on how they're trying to implement the technique that causes the problem.
1: What about over the years, fish size and fish numbers? What are the major changes you've seen?
2: Uh, well, I'll tell you one thing, since they put no-kill on the Pier Marquette River in the flies. There is so many brown trout in there, you can't imagine. It is really a world class brown trout fish. You can catch a lot of brown trout in that river. And uh, there's a lot more people that don't kill fish now than there used to be. So even, even the ones that don't fish in the flies only, they go down the river, they don't kill them either. Um, Most of the guides all don't kill fish. Uh, Most of the streamer fishermen don't kill fish. That's what I've seen. I've seen a lot more catch and release now than than there used to be because of that. And I think it's good.
1: Have you seen any difference in fish size or is it mostly just numbers?
2: Well, the numbers are the people. There's a lot more people fishing and there's a lot more drift boats or rafts um i mean when i first started guiding for instance uh well for 20 years i didn't use a boat on the pure market i waited and then when i started guiding i used my boat that i had out in montana i bought my boat in 1989 by the way i still use it today same boat it looks a lot prettier in that book though don't it but anyway uh it's <laughs> had a few paint jobs but it's the same boat i bought in 1989 before i even started guiding <clears throat> but the, the the thing that has really changed is the amount of boats or rafts on any river in America. And that includes the White River, the Madison River, the Missouri River. I guided out there for 25 years. I was an outfitter. And the number of boats is a is incredible. Let's just put it that way. So to be quite frank with you, Montana is so busy, um, I actually enjoy fishing more in Michigan now. In the summertime, there's less boats than out in Montana. And I don't really see where the even the steelhead are smaller than they used to be. I, they're, they're being pretty well fed. I actually hear of a lot more 20-pound steelhead caught in Michigan now than I used to 40 years ago really mm-hmm. and for years I was a statistics guy so I was in quality that was my expertise even though I didn't go to college I still managed to do it but um, so when I first started guiding I thought it'd be cool to keep track of each day of the week how many fish we hooked and landed and um, so I did that for 10 years. And you know what? I don't think the numbers are any different now, 30 years later. My numbers I'm talking about. So 30 years ago, my numbers were like hook 10, 10 steel lead land two or three. And a small river like the Pierre Marquette, once, it, once they learned to head towards the woods, <laughs> You know, and I don't believe in fishing anything more than 10-pound test for them. So uh, we lose fish. So so be it, you know. I I promote a lot more of my people now to streamer fish for steelhead. I actually been streamer fishing for steelhead for 30 years, too. A lot of people just start doing it the last five or ten years think they invented it. They really didn't invent it.
1: <laughs> How did they use to fish for steelhead? I mean, was it primarily nymphing or or using bait?
2: Yeah. So, so I fished, well, be quite frank, yeah, that's a good question. Because when I first started fishing for steelhead in the 60s, over on the east side of Michigan, everybody fished with spawn. But I refused to do that because you had to kill fish to fish with spawn. So we fished with little Cleos and stuff like that. And uh, even though I had a fly rod. But uh, when I started fishing over on the Pier Marquette in 1972, I fished with all flies right away. And uh, uh, I fished with uh, mostly flies that looked like hex nymphs and green caddis pupa and stuff like that. And I was lucky enough that I rented a place right next to Zimi Knopf, who was a well known first guy down the Pi Marquette River. He was probably seventy then and he lived to be like ninety six I believe and um he got to be a very good friend of mine and he taught me how to how to steal that fish and uh, we mainly fished runs and holes, you know and uh my, he actually invented a fly called a Spring Wiggler. But if you looked at it, it probably looked more like a hex nip than, than anything else. So here's the story on streamers. So when I first started guide, guiding, 1992, I told him I was going to guide. And uh, he was, I think he was actually a little bit disappointed. in you? <laughs> but anyway... Uh, a little bit so I'm out there by right out in front of his place one day that first year that I was guy, and he comes out there and he says how you doing and uh, he was a Norwegian and he stood 90 he was about 90 years old then probably right around there he stood as tall and straight as he ever did even though he had a cane he was out by the river and he walked up to me and I think the story might be in my book I don't remember and he walked up to me and he says, how you doing? I said, well, we're doing pretty good. And, you know, we're fishing for steelhead and trout behind behind the reds. And uh, he says, you fishing with eggs? And I said, yeah. He said, well, why don't you look down by your feet? So I looked down there and he says, you see those? And he says, I said, yeah, those are fry. He says, well, Out there, they're eggs, and then they get to be a fry with an egg, and then they're over here swimming now. They were only about an inch long. He handed me some patterns, and it was like an elven would be now, and then then a fry, and then a smolt. And he says, as these get bigger now, the fish and the brown trout and the steelhead will start eating bigger ones, so you gotta kinda keep track of where you're at in relationship to the growth of the of the fish. But he says you really should start fishing uh more like streamers and stuff. And so I took some of his flies and put them on 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 the on the uh other rods that I had that had a regular fly line sinking a lot on them. And uh it got to be a big thing and I, I did it for a long time. So one and I still do it the same way. So when we're moving in the boat we streamer fish. And when we stop, then we're we usually fish eggs or elvins or green caddis pupa or black stones or x nymphs or something like that. So uh, and I've been doing that for thirty years. But I had a good teacher.
1: And you mentioned your book. Can we talk about that real quick? Sure. Yeah, so why, I mean, obviously I'm ecstatic that you have written a book, but what prompted that? What gave you the idea?
2: Well, I think I I, I had some things to offer. I, I fished with a lot of people and a lot of good fishermen too, by the way. You know, and um, I don't want to mention names, but I fished with probably the best Fisherman in Michigan and Kelly Gallup's one of my best friends, you know, so I fish, I I fished with him a little bit too. And I, I, I got to think Well, George Daniels. He and I got to be good friends and he wrote that book and he comes and fishes with me every year. And I'm kind of like, you know, I think i maybe know a few things different than these guys do. Everything, every everybody has a niche, and everybody fishes different, but every everybody catches fish. you understand what I'm saying
1: yeah, absolutely
2: so I think i, I think I have some things to offer and then I thought it over and it was through Bob Lindseman I don't know if you heard of Bob, but he's written about ten books, and he's a Michigan Michigan and he's a good friend of mine, and he and I was talking about it one day. And I said, I think I'm going to write a book. And he said, Well, what do you, what do you think you're going to do? And I said, Well, you know, I think I. Years ago, if anybody thought I was going to write a book, it would have been about Spring Creek fishermen because I loved it. And I taught when I started guiding out in Montana. I was on the Spring Creeks probably fifty or sixty days out of the summer, and. So I thought about writing the Spring Crick book, but then, then I got thinking about it. I want to write about Michigan, you know? So I want to write about me being in the middle seat. And a couple of friends of mine that read these other books says, you know, I can't finish the books because they're kind of all technical and they wear me out, you know? So I thought, well, maybe if I kind of make, make it a story when I'm fishing or taking people fishing and teaching on the river. And Bob and I got thinking about it. He said, well, why don't, you know, why don't you call the book from the middle seat, you know? So that's, that's basically how it started. And, uh, um, Bob gave me some pointers. My wife's got a degree in literature, so I would write like crap. I don't even read I would because I've been too busy all my life I I write like crap my wife would make it look like maybe somebody might read it and uh and uh it was kind of interesting so and then I heard a good Bob put me towards a real good editor and she did a great job on my book so you know it's you, you know you do these things and you you get the right people to help you, and you can end up I think I ended up with a pretty good book. And I had a real good uh, publisher, and uh, I don't know. he wanted me to make some changes in my book, and I was kind of like thinking, "Well, this is my book, not your book." And there were some other reasons, but I bailed out on having him publish my book. So I decided to self-publish it. And my daughter, one day, my daughter can do anything. My daughter, one day, she said, well, why don't you just let me do the book? So I talked to the printer and she found out what program you gotta have to, so they'll print the book. She got the program. Within a couple of weeks, she knew how to do the program. And my daughter put that whole book together.
1: Oh, that's amazing. Which
2: which makes it even cooler.
1: Yeah, it so does. it's
2: a fam- family project, really.
1: I love it, and I love yeah. the title. That's so perfect. Can you share with us your favorite chapter in the whole book? Wow. And You can share more than one, so don't feel like you're limited to one.
2: Well, I've caught a lot of fish. I've caught a lot of fish in different ways, nymphing, streamer fishing, dry fly fishing, mousing, everything. I like them all. But of late, because I've caught enough little fish. So I, I like chasing trophies. I like streamer fishing. I like I like to take. I like to see them big babies following and taking and rolling on the streamer. and. I really think I've gotten pretty good at it, by the way, too. So uh, mostly the streamer chapters is probably my favorite.
1: But is there one, can you tell me a story from the book?
2: Yeah, here's an example. I think one of the, you know, every everybody goes fishing. And they they go down a river, and I, the last person, two people I fished with in, in Montana. The bite wasn't really very good. So they start changing their flies, and they change their flies in different colors and different colors. You know what you want to do is change your technique. So my favorite chapter out of that whole book is probably on retrieves, and I think I I do some things different with my retrieves that the other guys don't do.
1: Oh, and
2: um, almost everybody that streamer fishes by one rod one line. So if they're in deep water, they might be fishing too shallow. And they got to slow their strip down. And uh, if if you just strip regular like everybody does and keep their rod hand still and strip strip strip, there's always tension on the line. So I come up with a way of stripping with both hands. It's almost like a uh, strip set, you know, and uh, give George Daniels credit for that strip set thing. But uh, the way I I strip is I move my hand back and forth in and out. And when you move your rod tip forward, you get a loop in the end of the line that completely relaxes your line. Your line can sink better and you get a longer pause with your fly. So there's a story in that one chapter, probably on retrieves, where I had this client and he moved like eight or 10 fish that day, but he's stripping just like this, hands standing still, strip, 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 always tension on the fly. Uh, yeah, If you don't come forward with that rod, there's, there, there's no way that line really relaxes. So, uh, after, after a bit, I, you know, he's kind of like, oh, my God, I'm missing all these fish. What am I doing wrong, you know? So I watched him a little bit, and I said, man, you, you just don't have no pause. You got quick hands. You know, you can't wait to grab that line and get it going again. You know, you're, you're, you know, it's, and if you don't pause that line, the fly can't pause. The fly don't pause. The fish can't eat it. And if the fly don't pause, it don't move because it's not relaxed enough that it can move in the current. So, you you, you know, you got to change your retrieve. So I changed his retrieve and a couple hours later he was, the bite was really slowed for a while there. And a couple hours later, a few hours, it was getting into the ninth inning and you can see where he's waning. You know, he's kind of like ready to bail out on me. I said, man, I said, tell you tell you what, we got a little front moving in here. You just hang in there and I'll tell you what, you just keep doing that strip I taught you. And sure as heck, like 20 minutes later he threw his fly across there and he's stripping like this, the strip set strip. And that fly has paws in every time he comes forward with the rod. And all of a sudden we see this big fish come up eat that fly like there and was just sitting there and automatically you go back with your hands when you retrieve it, both of them. He had the hook set before he even knew it and he landed a Brown about 28 inches long. So that story
1: So is the book really a technical book laced? I mean, I know you'd said it's a technical book laced into a story, but do you actually separate the chapters into different techniques?
2: It was really interesting because when I first, the only books I ever read with John Gerich is because I don't have time to sit and re, 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 I don't think, a whole, read a whole book. A lot of people do. I just don't. I just never been that much of a book reader. So I like John Gerich just because you read a chapter and you read a chapter and you read a chapter and you read a chapter. So when I first wanted to write my book, that's the way I kind of wanted to write it. And Bob says, "You know you got a lot of stuff going on here. You got to put this stuff in some kind of an order, or people won't learn it as well. You don't want to just mix this in with that chapter and this in with that chapter and this in with chapter. you know they they won't get it. They won't pick it up, you know, so basically, the first Seven chap, six chapters on streamer fishing, you know, is basically first what what the trout eat and then how to read the water, which is very important. And then the conditions and so on, retrieves and so on and so forth. So the chapters on streamers are basically more in, in an order uh, or a sequence. And uh, the rest of the chapters kind of like stand on their own.
1: Gotcha. And then where can people buy this book, Jack?
2: Uh, they can buy it for me online, but it's in like 23 fly shops now, three of them in Montana, one in Ohio, Pennsylvania, a lot of them in Michigan, Arkansas. Uh, so they can buy them at fly shops, but they can also go to my business name website, which is Country Anglers, and they can buy them right on my web. And then I mail them to them. And I, every one I mail... I probably shouldn't say this, but because normally I charge an extra fifteen dollars for a personal signature, I write a little personal thing in there, and then I donate that fifteen bucks to Tu. But I've been doing it anyway. So, <laughs> but um, now I guess I just changed my book so it can be bought any place in the world. Uh, I know it can be bought in Europe now. I had a guy contact me oh six eight months ago from you your uh, Steve Ye- Yeoman his name is I, I had no idea who this guy was he he uh, messaged me and says hey I want to buy your book but I can't figure out how to do it your so I, when I first set it up you can only buy it in America like and uh, so. He says, can I mail you a check in pounds and blah, blah, blah. So I thought, you know what? Just give me your address and I'll mail you a book free. I don't want to deal with all this pound stuff and everything. So um, so I mailed him a book. And now he wrote a uh, book review, which is coming out. There is out in Europe. So now I've got my website. Set up so they can buy too, and pay for the postage and everything all at once. So, yeah, so they can buy it in fly shops or they can buy it from me on my web. And uh, they better hurry up because I'm running out of books.
1: (laughs) Yeah, get on it. (laughs) I'll be sure to include all the links too. Um, Now, Jack, it's getting late there for you, Michigan time or Eastern time. Yeah. Before we wrap it up, is this is going to be? This may seem like an insensitive question, but I promise you, it's not. If you, if you could be remembered as anything or leave behind a legacy, what would it be?
2: I think all fly fishermen or hunters or whoever they are, golfers or whoever, ought to give back to whatever they're doing. And I think I have done an awful lot through TU and other organizations to help out the rivers that I fish. Let's just put it that way
1: before we wrap it up is there anything that you would like to add I mean we've got years upon years that we haven't covered here but is there anything really important that you would like to share that I've missed or haven't thought to ask
2: not really but all all I can say is reiterate um, if you're thinking about become a fisherman uh, don't do it alone take get a friend Uh, male female whatever And get them not only involved in fishing with you, so you have a friend in fishing with you, but also get them involved in the conservation group and get them involved helping out too.
1: Yep, perfect. Well, I'll wrap it up here. Don't hang up, but um, thank you very much for taking the time tonight to sit down with me.
2: It's been great. Thank you.
1: And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening.
0: Days with saltwater experience brought to you by golden boat lifts every thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment you're listening to the waypoint podcast network brought to you in part by hunt the number one hunting and land management app